Hello, and welcome to The Lovely Life with Trina McNeely. I'm going to help you learn to love your life, your everyday life, not the one you idealize from Instagram or the one that's on the other side of overwhelm, stress, and anxiety. I'm talking about the one you woke up to today. This is a podcast about learning to live better spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically, no matter what you're going through. Living the lovely life doesn't mean that your life is devoid of pain and problems or that everything looks perfect. Quite the opposite. It's simply learning to find beauty in the midst of the mess and choosing to participate in your life even when it's not going your way. In this conversational and contemplative podcast, you can expect thoughtful interviews, faith-filled encouragement, and practical tips to help you create space for peace and joy today. So listen in, friend, because together, we're going to learn how to make our everyday a little easier, more meaningful, and truly beautiful. Hi, friends. Today's episode features the lovely Nicole Zazowski. You know when you meet someone and you instantly like them? Well, Nicole is one of those people for me. She is an old soul that is brimming with wisdom and kindness. Nicole's the author of From Lost to Found, Giving Up What You Think You Want for What Will Set You Free. She's also a licensed marriage and family therapist. That means this episode might feel a little bit like the best kind of therapy. Friends, I wish I would have had this episode about eight years ago when I was in the throes of pain and working through some destructive behaviors in my life. We're going to talk today about how we can choose joy and peace outside of our circumstances and how to become more of a whole interdependent person. So listen in. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to The Lovely Life. I'm so glad to have you today. Oh, thanks for having me, Trina. It's always so much fun to talk with you. I know. This feels like a treat. I just talk between two friends, so I'm really excited. Me too. I would love for you to share with the listeners a little bit about yourself, about your story, and your amazing book, From Lost to Found, which, by the way, has such a beautiful cover. Oh, thank you. I can't take any credit for that. My my publisher did a great job. They did. (laughs) So I am a marriage and family therapist, but for a long time, I didn't realize that I was personally missing out on the peace and joy that I was so passionate about helping others find. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I encountered my own season of loss and grief. Some of those things were tangible losses that I outline in the book, but perhaps more importantly, a lot of those things were the loss of supports and the props to my faith and idols really that had promised way more than they could deliver. And you know, that pain really took my hands off of those things that were never meant to work in my life. And so that, that really started a journey of having entitlements pulled from my grasp (laughs) unwillingly and being given empty hands to receive the better version of, of what I had been looking for in Christ. 
Beautiful. Was there like a turning point where you realize, I think a lot of times when we're going through loss, everything is so chaotic and things are kind of being taken or there's shifts and it's just a lot of chaos and it's hard to think through. It's cloudy. What was the turning point for you where you realized that you were, you did have open hands and there was something different and perhaps better that the Lord was trying to fill your hands and help you to find? That's such a good question. I think there were maybe several turns or forks in the road in the journey because I'm stubborn. I I required lots of turning points, Mm -hmm. but I think the initial one was, and I talk about this in the very first chapter, but our move across the country from California to Connecticut, Mm -hmm. um, it was so devastating for me beyond just the loss of community and the loss of you know, what was familiar in my everyday routine, I really sensed this deep loss of identity. I felt very known in Pasadena where we were. I I had sort of built this life that I describe as, as comfortable, which we can talk about too. But, you know, this life that was very much built with my own two hands, I felt very in control I was unknowingly living this narrative that if I just worked hard enough, I could create the life that I wanted that would make me feel good. And so the move really highlighted everything that I was leaving behind, including my identity. And that's because my identity was tied to all the wrong things, all the things that I couldn't take with me. You know, my reputation, the success I had had at my job the things that I was able to accomplish and the ways that I felt very recognized and significant. And it was a wake-up call for me to move across the country and not only feel the pain of transition, which all transition brings, but also to recognize that my identity was in things that couldn't cross state lines. And that was sort of the first ripping off of that Band-Aid to expose a wound that really needed to be cleaned and healed and not and not just numbed anymore. Yeah, I can so relate to that in my own journey of having identity and kind of security stripped away. And to me, it was kind of a shocker because I've been a believer for my whole life, basically, since I was a child. And if somebody would have asked me, I would have said, oh, no, my identity is in Christ. My security is in Christ. And then when things began to unravel in my life, when I went through my own loss, I found, nope, that actually wasn't where my full Mm -hmm. identity and security was. It was in my family of origin. It was in kind of this family system we had set up. It was in a home and a place. and so that's when things began to shift, but it was kind of a, a slap in the face and a real wake up call. You know, you talk in the, in the book, you just mentioned wounds mm-hmm. and you say the wounds we experience and the re- reactions we employ are not who we are, but they do describe how we feel and what we tend to do when we are in emotional pain. And you shared in the book candidly that you're Reactive behaviors are shame, performance, and control. 
I know when I went through the loss in my life, there were a lot of reactive behaviors that I was surprised to identify as well. And how does a person figure out what their reactive behaviors are if they might not be paying attention or, you know, we just kind of live on autopilot till something disrupts us and we have to face them. Is there any way that we can pinpoint those so we can work on becoming healthy? Absolutely. So, and, and I think you said it well, that those, those losses or those painful times in life, the gift that they often give us is exposing what is no longer working, or at least won't work when, when signs of trouble come. So one way would be to kind of reflect on the, the painful times and losses in your life. But the general framework is based on the model of therapy that I practice, which is called restoration therapy. And the idea is that we all have mostly three to four wounds that every time we're in a painful situation, 90% of the time, it's going to be one of those three or four, maybe a few of them. And that is based on our stories. So Trina, you and I could go through the same exact situation tomorrow. I might feel inadequate and worthless, and you might feel alone and insecure just based on, and those are totally made up. Just yeah. based on <laughs> but you might've hit the nail on the okay. head for me, actually. <laughs> exactly. Know a little bit about your story, just based on the experiences that we've had that have shaped those wounds. And those wounds fall into two categories. They're either going to be something having to do with our identity or something having to do with our sense of safety or security. And so those are, those are two great questions to ask in terms of the wounds is how am I feeling about myself or how am I feeling about this relationship or situation that kind of help us get beyond just I'm feeling sad or they kind of get at the message of what we're carrying around. And in turn, we have ways of reacting to our pain that is totally understandable, but not very helpful. And and there's four main categories for those reactive behaviors or, or unhealthy coping. The first category is blame. So getting really angry, raging. It doesn't have to be loud. You know, the silent treatment would still be included in blame. The second category is shame. I call Eeyore the poster child of shame. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So kind of that inconsolable, can't take in anything positive, just has this really strong filter for only receiving harsh criticism and not receiving anything good about Mm. themselves. They're also very self-critical. So the messages, if you were to play a tape of their brain, (laughs) it would not be kind toward themselves. And then the third one is control. And this is a tricky one. And one of the reasons that my behaviors flew under the radar for so long is American culture really celebrates a lot of behaviors in this quadrant. So things like performance and perfectionism, micromanaging, even achievement, if it's used improperly, you know, literally controlling every little detail of your life and other people. And then finally, the fourth one is escape. And escape has lots of different faces, 
but any, it's anything that kind of takes our, ourselves mentally and emotionally away from the pain. It's, it's like anesthesia when, when it wears off, we awake to the same pain. It doesn't solve anything, but escape basically says I can do nothing. You know, control says I can do everything to make my situation better. Escape says I can do nothing to make anything better. And so I'm just going to watch Netflix. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to drink. I'm going to drug. I'm going to watch porn. You know what? There's 9 million things we can do. But the point is, it's serving that numbing purpose. And so maybe you're listening and as I'm describing these four things, you can totally, like it holds up the mirror to what you do in pain. But I think the best way to diagnose yourself is just to reflect on those painful situations or going forward when you feel pain, you know, what is it that you're tempted to do? And chances are there's going to be three or four things, not necessarily three or four of those blame, shame, control, escape categories, but three or four more specific things that you do every time that you're in pain. Wow. I I just started taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad it's helpful. It's been helpful for me. Yeah, so helpful. Can a person kind of vacillate between those four quadrants? I know when you were saying them, I thought, oh, sometimes, you know, I've I'm guilty of all of them and Definitely yeah. getting your held up when you said Eeyore. I've been called Eeyore in my life <laughs> before. <laughs> you know, they've got those silly like Winnie the Pooh tests and my mom's always like, you're this one, you're that one. And at times I have been Eeyore and mm-hmm. then I go over to Piglet, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally get that. Like I, I resonate with shame and I resonate with escape. That's something that I've had to really work through and not just zone out and yep. and think I can't do anything about it and I'm just going to watch Netflix mm-hmm. or, you know, I fantasize about running away. Like I'm going to get on a, yep. a plane and go from O'Hare to anywhere, I always say. But there are times I can fall into control too and perfectionism and so forth. So I'm curious if that's normal for a person to vacillate between them or kind of identify with one more than the other. Yes. So you can practice one, two, three, or all four of those quadrants. I would say most people I encounter in my therapy practice, including myself, probably are in the two to three broad category. Like most of us have have two or maybe three, and then, you know, more specific things in each of those buckets. So most people, I would say, probably practice two to three, but it's certainly possible that most of your behaviors fall in one bucket and they could be spread out across all four. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense and brings a lot of clarification. You talk about in the book, perfectionism Mm -hmm. and that being a way that you cope. And you specifically said in one portion that you, perfectionism was a way for you to cope with rejection. And I'm wondering then if it kind of opened my eyes, I can Mm -hmm. fall into perfectionism and I've never linked it to rejection. Can that, is that a common link? And can you talk to us a little bit about perfectionism? Because I think that that's a huge thing for so many people 
Sure. It's definitely been a a theme in my life. I think for a long time, you know, we all have these lies or myths that we tell ourselves about what keeps people around. And for a long time growing up, unknowingly, I wouldn't have have been able to articulate it this way as a as a child and as a teenager. But looking back, I realized that I was living like the thing that kept people around was my own performance. And not just my performance in school or athletics or on stage, but really my ability to please and meet other people's needs. And so that was really the driver of my perfectionism is I was so afraid that if I let somebody down or failed to meet expectations or failed in in something that I was really going hard after, that that people would leave and that they wouldn't, and maybe they wouldn't physically leave, but my status and my significance in their life would be reduced. And I, like I said, until, until the move and my husband and I walked through several miscarriages, which was really painful and, and also outlined in the book, I didn't realize that that was the narrative that I was playing. And so I think it is a common link, but you can certainly experience rejection and do something else with that. You can certainly practice perfectionism. And there be a different wound or a different message driving that. But it's not, it's not unusual for if your pain has to do with your identity, it's not unusual for shame and performance to be something that you do to try to protect yourself from that. That makes so much sense. So much sense. You go on in the book to talk about choosing. Choosing joy outside of our circumstances, choosing truth, choosing hope, to name a few, and also choosing interdependence. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what interdependence is and why it's so important? I know that's a newer term in my life, and some people may be very familiar with it or not, but I think it's really important. Yeah. And I talk about this in, in chapter nine or 19, when I talk a little bit about my marriage and just walking through, I, I'm really blessed with a really wonderful marriage, but I, I try and be really raw and honest in that chapter about the ways in which I was doing relationship wrong in my marriage and how the pain of that so many multiple losses that we experienced really brought that to the surface and held up the mirror to the ways that I needed to grow in my marriage. And interdependence was a huge part of that. And so I think even still in American culture and even still in American Christian culture, we tend toward these two extremes. One would be independence where you know we sort of believe that we don't need anybody that strength always looks like invulnerability that we you know can can essentially do anything and everything to give ourselves the peace and joy that we long for that we're just very self-reliant 
And I would say a lot of American culture really preaches that message. And that is really destructive in our relationships, not just marriage, but in our friendships to go about life like we don't need anybody. I think God created, I know he did. He created us for relationship. I think we thrive in relationship. And certainly community is is an important part of not only our own well-being, but the well-being of the church and culture as at large. The other extreme would be dependence. And then we kind of get into this approach to relationships called where, where there's this idea that I am going to make other people responsible for my own peace and joy, for my own sense of identity and safety. Without getting too technical, it's called co-regulation. And where, where I essentially say, I can't be okay unless you respond to me in the perfect way, or yeah. I can't feel good about myself or secure unless A, B, and C happens in my life. And particularly in relationship, I just really realized how much I had been swaying between independence and dependence. And so interdependence is this idea that we give to one another, that we relate to one another, but it's from a place of strength, meaning I know my own identity and sense of safety, and therefore I can share deeply with you. So we're connected, but we're not solely responsible for each other's, for the regulating each other's pain, if, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I, w- I, I would have thought, and I love how you use the term co-regulate, and I was going to ask, is, is codependency on that spectrum? But that may be mm-hmm. a little different, or maybe that kind of goes right along with the dependence and the co-regulating. Yeah. I think for some who fall into that dependence tendency, mm-hmm. that could, but doesn't have to be a struggle. I know it certainly was a struggle for me, particularly in my early 20s, where that codependence became very, very strong. And I had mm-hmm. to, I had to really do some work to find some freedom in that area. But, you know, God is the only one who can ultimately meet, meet our needs. And so looking at other people to meet every need when it comes to our identity and sense of security is going to leave us frustrated and disappointed and probably with the same pain that we were trying to avoid in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not the therapist, so you can correct me, but in my experience, a lot of that is learned behavior. I I fall on the dependence side of things Mm -hmm. and some of that just has to do with like the family system that I grew up in and, you know, people's place within the family. And I watched people in my life respond in a dependent kind of way. And then naturally I kind of picked up on that and I watched another one be the independent one. And I sometimes can go that way if I have to, but I can tend to go more of the dependent way. But I, I imagine for so many people, it's a learned behavior and response to pain and a way to 
to cope and to deal with things. And so like anything, until you become aware of it, you, you almost just don't know because it's just such a pattern in your life. But once you become aware, I mean, that's such a big part of the change I know in my life it has been. And I still have that tendency to look to the other person to co-regulate or, well, I'm feeling this way because they, this or that or the other. And it's a practice to say, no, I have a choice here. Mm -hmm. I can't control how the other person might be reacting or responding to me, but I have a choice in how I react and respond or I want to have my day go or whatnot. I mean, things are out of our control, but there are choices Yes, we can always make. But I think so many times we feel we don't have choices and we get into that victim mindset. And so that's why I really like how you talk so much about choosing. And I'm wondering for you, what was the turning point? When did you begin to realize that you did have a choice mm. in all of these things? And and how can how can we, how can listeners here learn if some of these things are new concepts to them and they're kind of awakening to a pattern of behavior or response to pain in their lives, how can they begin to choose these things even if their circumstances are not changing? Yeah. And in a strange way, I think that was exactly the overarching turning point in my story is realizing I was sort of watching years tick by and thinking, okay, when this happens, I'll feel better. <laughs> I'll, I'll feel that peace and joy. I'll feel good enough. I'll feel safe in my own life story. And then the years would sort of tick by and nothing was changing. And I thought, I've got one wild and precious life. And yes, I'm still going to feel some very real feelings about my circumstances. This isn't about putting a silver lining on a cloud. I don't do that. I don't ask my clients to do that. It's not about calling something hard good, but a lot of our joy and the research supports this, a lot of Mm. our joy, we have some empowerment in, we have choice. And I I remember the day of the um, eclipse a few years back happened to be the day of my fourth miscarriage. And Connecticut was not a great place to watch the effects of the eclipse. But I remember there was like this, it was a sunny day, perfectly bright August day, or it should have been. And there was like this dull grayish quality to the light and the sun was obscured. And I turned on my TV and of course I saw more dramatic effects across the country of, you know, total darkness. And I thought, wow, what a picture. The the light is gone. In other words, we're going to have some feelings when the light is gone in our lives, whatever circumstances might, might be causing that. But the source of the light is not. No one worried that the sun was gone forever. No one worried the sun had disappeared. <laughs> we all trusted that it was there. And I think that became such a picture for me for the truth that while our feelings are real and and need to be listened to, there's a difference between feelings real being real and feelings being true. And I have a choice whether I am going to believe that feeling and, and react to that feeling, 
or whether I'm going to trust the truth, whether I feel it or not, and act on what I know to be true instead of react to how I feel. I love that story about the eclipse. What a beautiful word picture and way to look at it. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. It's, it's been a helpful thing for me to carry forward. And I think part of God's grace, not that he caused that pain on that day, but it's, it's been a, a special way of remembering that part of that painful story, as painful as it is, it's the story that has kept me tethered to the hope of Christ. And the eclipse has been such a, a beautiful picture to remember and have that really stick with me. Yes. And I want to end with a quote from your book where I ask you a few quick questions that I ask every guest, but I want to end this conversation with a quote that is so beautiful. You say, I can now see that every obstacle and interruption I faced came with an invitation to let Christ be my peace outside of circumstance. What we desire most is ultimately meant to usher us into deeper intimacy with him. It's beautiful. And I don't think it can be put any better that these obstacles, these interruptions, these pains, these behaviors that we uncover, they're, they're invitations if we'll look at them as such. And the ultimate goal is certainly deeper intimacy with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm still, I'm still preaching to myself on that one. This is, I say at the end of my book, I am by no means all fixed up and fine, but I'm certainly learning to look to the one who fixed himself to a cross Mm -hmm. so that, so that my peace and joy doesn't have to be dependent on what's going on right now. That what is dark today is not going to be dark forever. And that, that is the promise and the hope that we have in Christ. And that's just become such a, you know, goodness, am I grateful if I, if I had to walk through all of that. And I know that I am not alone, that we all have stories of, of pain and struggle in, in some way, shape or form. But if we have to walk through those things, you know, how, where are the invitations to, to draw closer to Christ as he draws closer to us? Yes. Beautiful. So Everyone that can hear by the sound of our voices, look for the invitations, (laughs) (laughs) accept the invitations. So before we close, I have a couple of questions that I ask every guest about their everyday lives. Let's do it. All right. What is one thing that makes your everyday life easier? Oh, I would have to say it's more of a principle than, than just one thing, but I have examples. I think Limiting the number of decisions in my day is especially is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so particularly when I'm in the thick of writing, trying to have a consistent bedtime and a consistent wake up time. So there's just not, uh, I'm just taking those decisions out and I'm, I'm careful that I'm getting enough sleep has been really helpful to me even when it comes to like my clothes, <laughs> there's, a, yeah. I don't, I don't have a ton, but there's a lot in my closet that I just don't really wear often. And so really trying to make choices about what I'm spending my money on. So it's stuff that I'm reaching for every day and just simplifying 
the decision, you know, staying pretty neutral and kind of everyday options and limiting those options has been, has been a helpful way to just take some of the choices out of the day. So smart. And what's, what makes your everyday life meaningful? I would have to say relationships. Like I said earlier, I think we are made for relationship. I think relationships are God's most precious gift to us here on earth. And they're the eternal aspect of this earth. And so I, I never regret a deep conversation with a friend and making that time. I find it so life-giving. I think especially in this last year, really highlighted for me <laughs> the importance of relationship in our well-being. I, when I hugged my one of my very dearest friends here in Connecticut for the first time in months, and I'm used to seeing her and hugging her probably at least two to three times a week. Trina, I it was like Aww. it was beyond ugly cry. I it was like a guttural sob. I just like, you know, laid in her lap and hugged her and just I mean, it came pouring out of me and I did not expect it. So just that contact, whether it's just conversation yeah. or hugs, we cannot we cannot become complacent in pursuing that in our lives, whether it's busy schedules keeping us from that or different quarantine policies keeping us from that. And we just need to get creative about finding other ways to connect if, when those things change. Yeah. That's such a good encouragement and timely, timely word. (laughs) One, one thing that has helped you make progress in your, it could be your spiritual, physical, mental, or emotional health? I love this question. I love the word progress because it's so different than perfection. Yes. I am learning to celebrate. It's not something I'm good at. I think I'm good at celebrating. I know I'm good at celebrating other people, but when it comes to celebrating joy in my own life, it's very loaded and complicated and I avoid it for a lot of different reasons, a lot of which have to do with fear that it's going to be taken away. Mm-hmm. And I think God is giving me a lot of invitations this year to step into the light a little bit on that one and trust the joy. And I'm learning and a lot of research supports this too. I'm learning just how vulnerable joy can be. And that feels strange because we think who would reject joy or who would be afraid of it. (laughs) But the more conversations I have, both in my counseling office and in friendships, I'm realizing I'm not alone there. And so God is really working with me on that one. And I'm seeing a lot of fruit, but it's a quest that I need to keep driving forward on. I like that. I resonate with that a lot. I think there's a lot of self-preservation involved when you've had a lot of pain and bad things happen. You're just kind of, you want to protect yourself from getting your hopes up or experiencing joy and then having that being taken away. Or you just, you're kind of in that mode of just waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time and to break that pattern. 
takes work to celebrate, but I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. That's mm-hmm. part of, of my work right now too, is hope and joy yeah. and to, to be expectant and yeah. celebrate. God wants that for us. So thank you for being with us today. This has been such a delightful and insightful conversation. I feel so encouraged and I know the listeners will too, as well as equipped to make more progress in our lives. Oh, thank you so much, friend. And you're not allowed to edit this part out, but you (laughs) (laughs) have been just such a voice, both in your, your writing and your speaking and your friendship in my life across state lines. And I know we're, we're relatively new friends, but what an impact you've made through your vulnerability and your storytelling and truth telling. I'm always eager for your posts and, and feel very grateful. Uh, for the truth that you have seeded in my own heart. So thank you, friend. Oh, thank you. You're making me cry. Thanks. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Have a great day. Thanks. You too. I'm Trina McNeely. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Lovely Life. If you love what you hear on this podcast and want other people to know that their everyday life can be beautiful and meaningful, then I want you to leave a five-star review and take a moment to subscribe to this podcast. Did you know that we have an online Lovely Life community? It's where we continue the discussion and cheer each other on. I want to personally invite you to join. Simply go to facebook.com slash groups slash lovely life community. For show notes and to subscribe to episode emails, visit trinamcneely.com slash podcast. Now I want to know what's making your everyday a little easier, more meaningful, and truly beautiful. Share with us all by using the hashtag LaLaLovelyLife on social media. Until next time, friends, here's to leaving behind perfect and learning to live better. 